Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. I hope you guys are all doing well. Let me just ask if you enjoy this video or learn something from it and appreciate my effort, please hit that like button and please consider subscribing. It's been another one of those days in this case where despite no one being named a person of interest or a suspect for the slain student's deaths, there's an abundance of details to share. First, the white car. Late this afternoon, the Moscow Police Department released an update stating that they are interested in speaking with the occupant slash occupants of a white 2011 to 2013 white Hyundai Elantra that was observed in the immediate area of the girls' King Street residence during the early morning hours of Sunday, November 13th. That would be right around the same time that the crime is believed to have gone down. The police said they do not know the car's license plate number. So why are the police suddenly looking for this white Elantra three weeks out from the crime? Well, they aren't really saying, so it's unclear if they think this vehicle could belong to the perpetrator or if they simply feel the occupant of it may have witnessed something early on that fateful Sunday morning. The update reads as follows. Tips and leads have led investigators to look for additional information about a vehicle being in the immediate area of the King Street residence during the early morning hours of Sunday, November 13th. Investigators believe the occupant or occupants of this vehicle may have critical information to share regarding the crime, end quote. So this makes me wonder if this Elantra is somehow tied to the tire tracks that investigators were seen measuring and taking photos of several days after the crime. Remember that? If anyone knows anything about this car, or if anyone knows someone in Moscow who drives a white Elantra, please submit that information to the tip line at 208-883-7180. Someone has to know something about this vehicle. This is a small town. How many white Hyundai Elantras can there be? Moving on to the removal of some of the students' belongings from the home, which remains an active crime scene, police chief James Fry of the Moscow Police Department actually drove up to the home in a U-Haul truck on Wednesday morning and tried to back the truck up as close as possible to the front door. Unfortunately, a slippery mix of snow and ice prevented him from making it up the driveway. This forced the detectives who were ferrying the various items from the house to the truck to walk a longer distance. The items the detectives brought out included see-through plastic bags containing clothing items and shoes, including a platform version of the classic black Converse sneaker, 
I'm pretty sure those belonged to Zana Kernadel, as she appears in many photos wearing that style. I have the same ones, so they stand out to me. There was also a vacuum cleaner, a white leather desk chair, a set of golf clubs, some suitcases, pillows, bedding, plastic containers of makeup, laundry hampers, and brown boxes, all vestiges of the joyous young people who called 1122 King Road home. Brian Enton of News Nation was there to witness this solemn event, and he said it was perhaps the saddest moment of this case so far. Enton described the scene as being silent, with no one talking as they journeyed back and forth between the house and the U-Haul. I'm sure those detectives, especially the ones with children, were fighting back their emotions so that they could pull off this heartbreaking task. The families, it would appear, will be retrieving their loved one's items in a more private location. Some of these belongings likely also are those of the two surviving roommates. On a really sad note, one of the victims, 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves, was supposed to be graduating this weekend, so her parents are having to navigate through the emotional pain of receiving her belongings while watching her classmates graduate without her. I often engage in magical thinking when I consider these tragedies, wishing we could turn back time and pull the victims out of harm's way. Kaylee and her friends had so much to look forward to, and this perpetrator ripped that all away. How dare he? Moving on to a different topic, and that is the dynamic between the Moscow residents who live there permanently and the students who invade the small town during the school year. Ashley Banfield wanted to see if conflicts between permanent Moscow residents and the students could have led to this crime. Apparently, such conflicts in university towns are called town-gown conflicts. Have you ever heard this term? Town-gown conflicts occur when permanent residents come to resent students for any number of reasons. According to Banfield, in Moscow, some residents feel that the social climate of the university has taken precedence over the learning climate and that some students may have a sense of entitlement. Banfield asked the question, is it possible that local resentment could have spurred a deranged local resident to commit this crime? To help answer that, she had author Steve Cavizzi, who wrote a book called The Optimal Town Gown Marriage, and he said that there are usually two issues that are part of most town gown conflicts. They are, one, student misbehavior often fueled by alcohol and substance abuse, and two, real estate. Per the author, Universities are tax-free entities. Thus, any real estate sucked up by a university stops being a tax source for the municipality, so the town loses income. A woman who lives in Moscow also appeared on the show. 
and she said that Moscow and the University of Idaho are really quite united. She didn't seem to feel there were any major town-gown conflicts there. She also stated that the university is integral to the town because it's the number one employer of Moscow residents. This woman did say, however, that Moscow is landlocked with very valuable farmland that is used to grow crops like wheat and lentils, and that there is something of a push and a pull between how much land the town should reserve for farming and how much they should sell to the university for growth and additional student housing. It really doesn't sound like a town-gown conflict is behind this crime. That's my takeaway. On another News Nation show, Chris Cuomo had yet another retired FBI specialist on, and they were talking about Hoodie Guy, who I refer to as Jack S., which someone pointed out to me recently sounds an awful lot like Jack S., which in turn gave me quite a chuckle. And I needed that chuckle because this case is frickin' awful. Now I'm calling him Hoodie Guy. Cuomo brought up Hoodie Guy's alleged trip to Africa, and that's somehow his way of possibly escaping the clutches of law enforcement. The guest said, well, first you have to find out if this trip was planned or if this was a last-minute ticket purchase. Was this a planned family vacation or something else? What I can say to that is, on Jack's mother's Facebook, which is still up and public, it appears that the family has been to Africa before, where they engage in hunting safaris. So maybe this is just a normal activity for Jack's family, and the trip has nothing whatsoever to do with him wanting to get out of the United States. When asked what type of person he thinks the perpetrator is, this FBI profiler said that the police should be looking for a white male in his 20s or 30s, someone who has freedom of movement late at night, and into the early morning hours. So by that, I think he meant someone who doesn't work during those hours or someone who doesn't have a family situation that requires him to be at home during that period. The profiler went on to say someone who knows the area well, someone who perhaps had some sort of relationship with one of the victims in the house, or someone who was doing that walking activity that starts with S and rhymes with walking, and maybe he was doing it to one or more of the victims. This profiler also said that there is definitely a relationship between the perpetrator and that house at 1122 King Road, because this was a very high-risk crime high risk because he entered a house with six adults in it, any of whom could have had a weapon on them. He had to have some sort of connection to that house to get away with this. The profiler explained that mass events like this one are typically planned, 
and he said that when you plan a crime, let's say you're a criminal, you want to come up with a recipe that gives you the highest probability of getting away with it. So once again, we have a criminal profiler saying this was done by a young white male who took the time to plan the crime. I keep racking my brain to try and understand what one or more of the victims could have done that would have made them targets of this person's unhinged rage. But of course, we don't know how the perpetrator thinks, what sets him off, what his connection really was to these people, what was brewing inside his head before he did this. The profiler also stated that the perp had to have known the students' schedules and that they were either inebriated and or sleeping when he came into the house. It creeps me out so bad to think that this person was outside the girl's house watching them unbeknownst to them. If they had any hint somebody was out there in the darkness or in a nearby apartment watching them with maybe binoculars, I'm sure they would have told their families and the local cops. Moving on to an HVAC repair person who showed up at 1122 King Road on Wednesday. This repair person was spotted at the girl's home, and he was allowed to bypass the yellow crime scene tape and enter the residence. Now everybody's wondering, what was this person doing at the home? Could it be just a repairman who was called out to fix the heating system? It is cold there right now and it's snowing. Or could it be related in some way to the investigation? According to Mike King of Profiling Evil, it's possible that this person was called in to assist the investigators in some capacity. King mentioned the home's filtration system and that maybe this person was called to remove filters for some reason or to do something with air ducts. King said it could also be that the investigators are finding the home either too humid or not humid enough for any forensic evidence that may still be there. King stated that maybe the investigators are concerned that the level of humidity could degrade any remaining evidence. Per King, he said the lower humidity can make some evidence harder to see. The basic gist of this conversation was that no one outside of the investigators seems to know why this HVAC repair person was at the home. The other happening today was the arrest of a 39-year-old man who is accused of being a peeping Tom. In his mugshot, you can see that he's got some sort of bandage or cast on his left arm. He also appears to have scratches on his face. Now, back in 2007, he was charged with causing the death of another man, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. 
it was a second-degree charge, and there were extenuating circumstances, so I think that's why he got such a light sentence. Though five years for taking someone's life, I'm sorry, that seems way too low. I made a separate video today about this person, so if you want to know more about him, check that out. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, hey, do me a favor, smash that like button and subscribe to my channel. See you tomorrow.